Oh God, please uh, watch over us as we come to your word. Uh, may my forgetfulness not be a distraction uh, to us engaging with your word. Uh, please encourage us this day that you have come in our Lord Jesus, that you will come, and that you are indeed a God of justice. Uh, we pray for his glory. Amen. Uh, so I wonder if you've ever had the thought, is it, is it actually worth it? Is it really worth living as a Christian? Uh, perhaps you're working away in your workplace, you're, you're doing your absolute best to uh, live out your faith, uh, conducting yourself with integrity, with honesty, uh, with real dedication, uh, and yet when it comes to the Christmas bonus or to that promotion that's up for grabs, uh, it's your dodgy colleague who gets it. Uh, and you think, is it, is it worth it? Like, what's the point? Does God even notice what I'm doing? And maybe you spend years and years uh, trying to have children at immense cost, physically, emotionally, financially. You see no results, even though as far as you can tell, you're doing your absolute best to be faithful to God. Or you're serving God, not, not just uh, not in a small way, but with real sacrifice. And yet your friend, who really couldn't care less about God, uh, who rejects God openly, falls pregnant without seeming, with seemingly without even trying. Right? Is it actually worth living as a Christian? Perhaps you're here and you're a student, and you are really grateful for the opportunity to, that God has given you to study at university. So you want to make the most of it, right? You study hard all semester long with real discipline, and yet when the exam results come out, it's your friend who spent most of the semester lazing around or partying that gets the better marks. And so you think, is it really worth living as a Christian? Maybe I should just... Go along with the flow. Go along with those who aren't Christians. After all, life seems to be easier for them and it keeps turning out better. Those are the kind of thoughts going through the minds of Israel in Malachi's day. In fact, they're not just going through their minds, they're coming out their lips. Right, we see that in verse 17, the very start of the passage. Look there, Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, clearly, that's not saying that God is physically tired. Right? God does not get tired. It's saying that Israel's words are just becoming tedious to God. God's fed up with them. So as they've done throughout the book of Malachi, as they'll continue to do, Israel responds with a question. Well, what do they say? They say, well, well, how have we wearied the Lord? What exactly are we saying, Israel says, that, that annoying God so much? Right, so, so Malachi explains, he says two things. First, he says, you weary the Lord by saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. So, so the Israelites are there, they're, they're living their lives, they're looking around at the people who couldn't care less about God, they don't live God's way, and, they, and they're saying to themselves, you know, God must quite like those people. He must be pleased with them. Because their life just keeps going well. just keeps turning out for the better. Right? They're like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who says, uh, I looked at the arrogant and I envied them. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. 
Isn't it true that as a Christian, so often the grass can seem greener just over there? You look at the people who aren't Christians, and not only on the surface, their life seems to be easier, and it keeps turning out better. Less struggle, less hardship, less suffering, and more comfort and power and pleasure. And you can start to think, is it worth it? I may as well join in with them. After all, God, God seems to be blessing them. That's what Israel's saying. And they also say, where is the God of justice? Which is really exactly the same sentiment, just just from a different perspective. Where's your justice, God? It's not fair. Because all the people who are evil, who are rejecting you, seem to be more successful, seem to be more blessed and prosperous. How, How is that fair? But it'd be like if my son Charlie was really misbehaving. This is purely a hypothetical. Of course, he'd never do that. But let's say he's really misbehaving and Gabby and I decide that we're going to give him some treats rather than punishing him. What would Ada be saying? It's not fair. Where's the justice in that? Where's the justice? That's Israel. It's not fair. You're, You're supposed to be a God of justice. And yet here these people who are openly rejecting you, who do not fear you, who do not honor you, are being blessed. This verse actually gives us some real insight into why it is that Israel is just going through the motions in their faith. We've seen that throughout the book of Malachi. Why is it that Israel are giving God their worst rather than their best when it comes to their sacrifices at the temple? Why are they half-hearted in their obedience? Why are they complacent about sin? We've seen all those things. Why is it? It's because they're cynical about God. They're cynical about God. If these kind of things aren't just going through your heads every now and then, but are coming out your lips so often that they're wearying God, then on the inside you must be thinking, why even bother? Why even bother? What's the point with this whole Christianity thing? It's just not worth it. It makes no difference. But even if I do keep serving God, what's the point in serving him in a costly way? What's the point in bearing any sacrifice? Oh, maybe, maybe I can just back off a bit, take the foot off the pedal, be a bit more comfortable, cut a few corners. Right? That's the Israelites. Right? That's the heart of these cynical Israelites. And in many ways, it's a theme of the rest of the book of Malachi. Right? Why bother? What's the point? What difference does it make? We're going to see that next week and the week after. Right? And let's be honest, it is not uncommon for those kind of thoughts to go through our heads even for them to come out our mouths. But particularly if somehow you got the idea that becoming a Christian was going to make life easier. Becoming a Christian was going to make life more comfortable or or just bring one blessing after another. You might have that idea, but then you become a Christian. Uh, Of course, there are wonderful blessings in being a Christian. But you become a Christian and you discover that at least in this life, being a Christian can often make things harder. For example, before you became a Christian, you probably didn't even really care about sin. You probably even enjoyed sin. Things that God said, don't do this, you, I love doing that. 
Right now that you're a Christian, you've got this never-ending struggle with sin. That's hard. Wouldn't it be easier just to give up on that? Right, but before you became a Christian, usually you just kind of went along with the crowd. You fo- you kind of followed the flow of culture, the people around you. Right, but now that you're a Christian, more and more you feel like your beliefs, your feelings, your lifestyle just don't fit in. You're a square peg in a round hole. Wouldn't it be so much easier? To just do away with that struggle. Before you became a Christian, you lived your life primarily for yourself and what you wanted to do. But now that you're a Christian, you're called to live primarily for Christ and what he wants you to do. All of that is very hard. It's a wonderful blessing to be a Christian, but it can also make life harder. After a while, you can start to think, is it even worth it? That's what Israel were doing. Or probably you don't stop going to church altogether. Probably you don't renounce your faith and walk away altogether. But often you will take your foot off the accelerator. There's less incentive to pray. There's less incentive to read the Bible. You start looking at your week and thinking, you know, is it really worth me going to that gospel community? I'll probably stop serving in that ministry team or if I do keep serving, I'll do it in a way that's comfortable for me. I won't do as much prep during the week. I'll I'll turn up kind of a bit closer, you know, not as early as I used to. After church, you know, I'll scoot off as quickly as possible because I really want to get home and watch the block or whatever it is that's on Sunday nights, right? So you see what I mean? Like the, the, The foot comes off the pedal because deep down you're thinking God doesn't even notice anyway. It makes no difference. It's not even worth it. That's Israel, right? And as much as we can relate to having these kind of thoughts, God says that when these patterns of of thinking and speaking become normal for his people, it wearies him. There's a point where he gets fed up with it because it's just not true. It's not true at all. What is true? Well, that's the rest, of the, the rest of the passage. Look at how God responds. First, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Be assured, because I am coming. I'm coming to judge. Look in verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. Right? So, so Israel says, where is the God of justice? And God says, rest assured, I'm coming. I'm coming, God says. One day I will come and I will bring my justice. Right? So Israel's problem was that they expected to see all of God's justice right now, right? or even yesterday. Like God was taking too long. But God says they still have to wait. I am coming, God says, but you have to wait. How long do they have to wait? Well, to answer that, we really have to answer another question, right? Here's the question. How many people are spoken about in chapter 3, verse 1? Have a look again at the passage there. How many people do you think are spoken about in this single verse? Or maybe is it one? If you're brave enough, put your hand up. Is it one? One, two, maybe three? Any advance on three? Probably three is as far as we go. Oh, I think it probably is three. I right, say, so first you've got God, 
Right, you look there at the verse, you've got God, the Lord Almighty. Right, the one at the start of the verse, he says, I will send my messenger. But then you've got the messenger that God sends. Right, the one whose job it is to prepare the way for the Lord. But who's this Lord that the messenger is preparing the way for? Well, Malachi says, look there, he says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Right, notice that change. Right? We've got I at the start of the verse. But now we've got uh, he. Right? This, this Lord is coming to his temple, not my temple. As you might expect, if you were to have I and, and then my, right? But instead, we've got I and his. And so it seems that this Lord Israel, that Israel is seeking, this messenger of the covenant, is a third person in this one verse. How do we put this together? I think it's one of those passages in the Old Testament in which God the Father promises that one day he will come to earth uh, in the person of Christ his Son to bring his justice. So so when does God fulfill that promise? How long does Israel have to wait? Well, he he fulfills it in different stages. It's a little bit like a mountain range. I don't know if you've been to mountains recently. Not a lot of mountains around here. But if you look at a mountain range from a distance, it just looks like one massive mountain, doesn't it? Then the closer you get, you realise that there's sort of foothills, uh, there's kind of like a, a whole bunch of different ridges, and then there's the summit itself. That's what it's a bit like with these Old Testament prophets as they predict the future, as they they look into the future. There's there's kind of multiple levels, multiple stages of fulfilment, if you like. And that's the case with these promises about God coming in his justice. Because on one level they're fulfilled when Jesus comes the first time. Christ comes first and he brings God's justice. And we know that that we know that because at the start of Mark's gospel, if you've got a Bible, flick into the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, the second book of the New Testament, the start of Mark's gospel. Uh, this is his biography of Jesus' life. Uh, he actually quotes from Malachi three verse one. Uh, here it is. He says, "The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God." as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Right? So he's about to quote Isaiah. This is a bit confusing, but, but first he quotes Malachi. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then he quotes Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then he says, if you're following in verse 4, he says, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So so what Mark's saying is that John the Baptist is the messenger of Malachi 3 verse 1. It's John the Baptist who comes to prepare the way for the Lord. And in Mark's gospel, quite incredibly, the Lord is Jesus. It's Jesus who John the Baptist prepares the way for. Jesus is the one that Malachi calls the messenger of the covenant, the Lord that Israel are seeking, who will come to his temple. We see that in the gospel. Jesus comes to his temple. He cleanses it. He clears it out. And we see the connection again in Malachi 4, verse 5. If you go back to Malachi, uh, look in chapter 4, verse 5. God says, uh, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's this about the, the prophet Elijah? Well, Matthew 11, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist again, and this is what he says. He says to the, people, uh, to the crowds, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Matthew 11, verse 7. 
a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Uh, Verse 10, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, verse 14, who is the Elijah who was to come. So Jesus is trying to join the dots for us. He's making it really clear that John the Baptist is the messenger, this Elijah-like figure out in the wilderness who's preparing the way for the Lord to come, for God to come. So Israel says, where is the God of justice? God says, I'm coming. Mark and Jesus say, I've come. I've come. That promise is fulfilled initially in the first coming of Jesus. But the summit of this verse, the kind of its ultimate fulfillment, will be when Jesus returns. And Jesus returns to bring God's justice in its fullness. When we finally see the difference in the context of Malachi between those who truly have feared and honoured and revered God as they should and those who haven't. So what's the upshot? Well, I think it's at least this. Be assured. Be assured, God's saying. Because even though living for me now might be really hard, in the end it makes a difference. God is coming to judge. He notices how we live. He notices your obedience, your faithfulness, your sacrifices to him. And so in light of eternity, it's worth living for him. So don't weary him by saying it's not. That's his rebuke to Israel. So first, be assured, God is coming to judge. But second, be worried. Because even though God's coming to judge, he's coming to judge you. This is particularly for Israel. Look at the start of verse 2. Malachi says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The picture here, that Israel thought God was slow in coming. Oh, come on, God, yeah, where's the God of justice? He's got, to, he's got to be coming soon. They thought he was running late. So now that he said he is coming, they're probably thinking, well, finally. You know, it's about time. You know, you're a little bit late, a little bit behind our schedule, but now you can finally sort out those evil people over there who you've been blessing instead of judging. So Malachi says, don't be so cocky. Don't be so cocky. Well, yes, God is coming in justice, but he's coming to judge you. And I'm not sure you can stand in his judgment. Do you really think you'll survive? Now, some of you might think, well, but aren't we supposed to, as Christians, we're supposed to have confidence in the face of God's judgment, aren't we? Not, not worry or, or concern. And of course, that's absolutely right. We can be confident in the face of God's judgment, but only if we're humble enough to admit that we're completely dependent on God's grace to us in Christ. But that's not Israel. Israel is not humble. Israel is cynical about God. They're, they're proud before God. And they've even started joining in openly, blatantly, with those who do evil. That's, that's the point of verse 5. Right, chapter 3, verse 5. They, these are the sort of things going on in Israel. Like God says there, I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. 
But this is actually going on in Israel. You can see why Malachi is saying you should be worried. The people of Israel have looked at the people around them. A couple of examples. Let's say they've looked at those committing sexual immorality, right? They're the adulterers. And they've thought to themselves, well, doesn't seem to be working out too bad for them. You remember chapter 2? I mean, that, that, guy, that guy divorced his wife and then found a better looking one from a foreign nation. Seems to work out okay. Maybe I'll just join them. Probably won't commit adultery because I'm better than that, but just mess around a bit sexually. Or perhaps they look at the dodgy business practices of someone, those who defraud labourers of their wages, and they think, well, their business is going well. Like, maybe I'll cut a few corners myself. God doesn't notice. It's a bit like speeding on the freeway, isn't it? You look at the drivers racing past you, doing 120. It's an old illustration for me. I don't drive anymore, but... Right? They're racing past, doing 120, and it's easy to think, well, they're not getting caught. Clearly, there's no problem with it. Oh, I won't do 120. Like, that's, that's just crazy. But I'll, I'll just ease up to 116. Right? God won't notice. God doesn't care. Right? But Malachi says God does notice. He does care. He says to Israel, if you have that kind of proud and casual attitude to sin, living in open, unrepentant sin, God says, be worried. Be worried. I'm not sure you'll stand, you'll endure my justice. But for those who are humble before God, right, who respect him as they should, God's justice is a wonderful thing because they'll experience to be a purifying judgment. Look at the rest of verse 2. God says that when he comes, he'll be like a refiner's fire. Right, the picture here is you're trying to purify precious metals, silver or gold. You heat them up so that all the impurities drop away, the dross drops away. Refiner's fire. He'll be like a launderer's soap. Right? Cleansing people, washing them clean of their sins. Have a look in verses 3 and 4. What's the purpose of all this purifying? It's that God would have a people for himself who would actually worship him as he deserves. Look there, a people with godly leaders, Levites, uh, unlike those dodgy Levites back in chapter 2. The leaders have been purified, right? And a people who offer him worship that pleases him. Notice the language, sacrifices that are acceptable and righteous and, and pure. And in part, we see this fulfilled in Christ's first coming. I remember those stages in Christ's first coming. We see it in the, in the work of Christ's spirit. What does Christ's spirit do but give us a new heart? It washes us clean. It, it purifies us on the inside. So Titus 3, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, that is, in, in Christ, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. And He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Right? The, the launderer's soap has already started its work. If you're a Christian who's been born again by the Spirit of God, the refining fire is at work in your life, purifying. You, you've already got a new heart. And because God has come in Christ, he's appeared to us, he's poured his spirit into our hearts, uh, we're reborn and we're washed clean and we confess our sins and put our trust in the cleansing power of Jesus' death. That's only because of the work of the Spirit. So 1 John 1 verses 7 to 9 says, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, 
purifies us of all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this purifying work has begun when God came in his justice the first time in the Lord Jesus. Through his death on the cross in our place, him dying for our uncleanness, that we might be clothed in his cleanness. Through his death, through the pouring out of his spirit, there's a real sense in which the job of cleaning us up has started. The launderer's soap is at work, but it's not finished, is it? I don't know about you, it's not finished in my life. Lots of sin, lots of sin to be working on. And so we wait for the work to be finished in the future. But notice also, as Malachi prophesied, even now with this unfinished work, we can offer God worship that pleases him. Write down Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled, at least in part. God now has a people that can actually offer him worship that pleases him. A people who've been purified by the work of his spirit, by the blood of his son. In view of his incredible mercies in that, Paul says, offer God your bodies as worship that is pure and pleasing to your God. But the job's not done. We have to wait for Christ's second coming, the next stage. So in 1 John 3, verse 2, we read, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the ultimate endpoint of this purifying judgment of God. The wonderful promise that when we see Christ in all his glory, we see him as he is. We'll be like him. You'll be like him. Every stain washed away, every impurity purged, every blemish removed. So don't be like Israel. Don't be like Israel, arrogantly thinking she'll be right. That's the Aussie line, isn't it? She'll be right. right? God's only going to judge those evil people over there. He's not concerned about me. I'm pretty good. I know, God is going to judge everyone. So be humble. Because in and of ourselves, none of us can endure his judgment. None of us are perfect. But if we depend on God's grace to us in Christ, we can not only endure God's judgment, but be gloriously purified, made like his son. So you're going to sing a, uh, we're going to sing a hymn in a little bit, Rock of Ages. Uh, this is how we come before God. We come before him humbly, saying, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry. Know this language. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's what Malachi is saying. That's how serious it is. If you're not washed clean by the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not endure his judgment. 
But if you approach God with humility in his abundant grace, even today, God will purify you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So be assured, be worried, be humbled, and finally be warned. Because God may be coming to put you on trial. This is the start of verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial, God says. I'll be quick to testify against you. So the Israelites, they arrogantly thought they were good enough to escape God's judgment. But Malachi says that when God comes, he will put them on trial. And it's not like he's short of evidence, right? He's got got a kind of watertight case. Plenty of evidence to testify them in court, so much so that they'll be speechless. Nothing to say. But the good news for Israel, the good news for you, is that there's still time. That's the good news for Israel. God warns them here not to finally condemn them, but to convict them. He warns them so that they would turn back to him, so that they would come to their senses, so that they could be shaken out of their their spiritual sleepiness. That's why in verse 7 he pleads with Israel saying, Return to me. Now's the time. Return to me and I will return to you. This is important, right? If you're like Israel and you think you can just kind of mess around with unrepentant sin and you'll escape God's judgment, you've got to hear this warning. Because you've really got two choices. You come face to face with God as a refining fire who will purify you and make you glorious. Or you come face to face with God as a consuming fire. A consuming fire that will go on forever. And you say, well, that's that's very intense, Aaron. It's intense. Like, well, why can't we just focus on love and grace and mercy like, like Jesus did? Well, you mean Jesus of Mark chapter 9? Mark 9, 47? Jesus who said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus. Jesus talking about the consuming fire of God's judgment that is never quenched uh, against proud and unrepented sin. Sin is serious. Deal with it. Humble yourself. That's what he's saying. So be warned, right? Because our holy God can easily put us on trial and he has plenty of evidence. But to come before him humbly this day that we might experience his glorious presence when he returns in the Lord Jesus Christ as a purifying fire rather than a consuming fire. So as you sit here today, um, how would you assess your attitude to living for God? Maybe you're having some struggles with sin. Maybe you're having some doubts about God's goodness. Maybe you've got some apathy at the thought of serving God. Or maybe you're even thinking, is it worth it? Well, if that's you, I want you to be assured. I'd be assured that living for God is worth it. It is worth it. God will come in justice and your life of trusting and obeying and serving him will be revealed for what it is and will be rewarded. 
So whatever you do, don't trade in the, the treasures of heaven, eternal glories, for temporary pleasures in this world. Be assured that it's worth it. On the other hand, maybe you're really, really just going through the motions in your faith. I'm trying to draw some fine distinctions here, but not so much struggling with sin, but openly surrendering to sin, habitually. And not having the occasional, every now and then, doubt about God's goodness, but if you're honest, a deep-seated cynicism about God's goodness. That's different. And if that's you, you, you should hear the warning of this passage. Return to God, verse 7. Confess your sins to him and trust that Christ's death on the cross really does have the power to purify you of all unrighteousness. Do that today. And lastly, I know there are plenty of people here who are giving themselves wholeheartedly to serving God. Plenty of people. You're not Israel. So let me just say, keep going. Right? Be encouraged. Right? Know that the Lord Jesus Christ does see your deeds. He sees your faithfulness, your sacrifice, your obedience. And when he returns, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. It's time to enter into your eternal glory. Now, let's pray. Uh, God and Father, uh, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we do confess that often uh, our thoughts and our words uh, are not dissimilar to the people of Israel. Is it really worth living for you? We pray that you would help us to be honest with you about that tonight, to confess that to you. Uh, we thank you that in Christ you have started the job of cleaning us up in his first coming that we can be purified from all unrighteousness by his blood shed on the cross, uh, that we can be cleansed on the inside by the work of your spirit and gradually renewed and made more and more like your son. We praise you for these wonderful things. And Lord, please uh, place in us a deep longing for that ultimate purification when we see our Lord Jesus as he is in all his glory and we will be like him. Help us to be assured uh, that you are the God who is faithful to your promises. You said you would come and you came in the Lord Jesus. You've said that you will come again and you will come in the Lord Jesus. Strengthen us this day to keep living for you. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.